Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is poet Trey Moody. We talk about some of the themes Moody explores in his poetry, the place of poetry in his and in our lives, and how we might make sense of the world through this craft. This episode of Lives was broadcast live on air on KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha's NPR station, and regular broadcaster of Live's radio show and podcast. And this podcast of my conversation with Trey Moody is the recording of that on-air show from Sunday, December 11th. Trey Moody was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. His first book, Thought That Nature, published by Saraband Books in 2014, won the Catherine A. Morton Prize in Poetry. His newer poems have appeared in The Atlantic, The Believer, Gulf Coast, Massachusetts Review, and New England Review, among many others. He teaches at Creighton University and lives with his daughter in Omaha, Nebraska. Here's our conversation. Trey Moody, welcome to this special Lives broadcast of Lives. Thanks, Stuart. It's a real pleasure to be here. So you and I were chatting just a little bit off air, and... I was intrigued by an interview you did with the Massachusetts Review, and you shared a story about one of the first poems you wrote when you were in fifth grade. And of course, I'm, I'm thinking back to all of us that perhaps have dabbled in poetry, but I, I love that you began in fifth grade. Would you share just a little more about that uh, particular poem and experience? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think it was around Valentine's Day. It must have been. I don't know why I was interested in writing a poem at that time, but I, somehow I was. And so, uh, yeah, I wrote a poem for a person who I wanted to be my Valentine in fifth grade. And along with, you know, the little um, text hearts that I probably distributed, uh, I, I attached a poem folded up that I that I wrote. And I don't really remember much about the poem other than I had this rhyme that I thought a lot about when I was writing it. And the rhyme was golden laces with braces. This person was had, had brace, newly, newly adorned braces. So I was, tr- you know, trying to honor that. And in retrospect, uh, I, I, I realized how sort of heinous that rhyme probably was. But uh, there was this moment where uh, she, she opened the poem and read it in a cor- corner of the classroom with her friends. And uh, I watched them read it, and I was—I uh, had to—I had to turn away. I couldn't take it. Um, and uh, uh, it was—it was really funny and really memorable uh, as a f- first moment of seeing an audience react live to my to my to my writing, which I think prepared me pretty well for creative writing poetry workshops later on. You know what I particularly love about that story is you remember a couple of really particular details. One is that perhaps all of us that begin with poetry, begin with thinking about, it needs to rhyme. And I love that you rhymed (laughs) laces with braces. Um, And obviously we're going to talk in our time together about how your writing has evolved. I also love though in that story that it's less the poem itself that you uh, remember, which you only remember parts of it, but the feelings around it are really much sharper. And I think that's really important that, that it's those feelings that are evoked that we remember. What do you remember from your childhood? You know, what stands out? Um, 
So I, I'm an only child, and so um, I think inherently silence stands out in a way. Learning how to imaginatively construct, you know, worlds and playscapes by myself, um, which I really value. I, I've always felt, you know, lonely in a way, but I didn't feel particularly lonely, like I was missing siblings or anything like that, you know, because I, I was raised um, beautifully and generously by by my mother and my grandmother, and so. Um, uh, I felt nourished in in so many ways uh, on that front, but my father did die when I was young. I was seven years old when my father died, and he, um, uh, my my mother and, and my father were divorced a, a couple years prior to that, and so memory is an interesting thing to me because I have memory of him, but right around that time, around the age of seven, there's a lot of memory that I just don't have. I I, I can't access, and so um, you know, going from there. I think the the next big area of memory I have was when I started be, sort of enriching my intellectual life and sort of getting into um, aspects of living in Texas that made me feel comfortable and uncomfortable, such as, you know, I think growing up without a father, I thought a lot about things like masculinity and things like that, you know, um, so, yeah. It, it occurs to me that I don't know that this is true. Um, I'm in danger of falling into a cliche here, but the idea of being an only child, I wonder how much that requires you to flex your imagination. You have to dive into that, as well as having a network of friends obviously around you, but quite often you really are aware that, that you are alone as a child. I don't know if that's true at all, um, but let me ask you, did, did you find that as a child you were very creative, imaginative? Absolutely. I mean, I did not grow up at all in a literary household or an artistic household. My my mother was a, a high school teacher, and we had books around, but not you know. I don't think that we had you know Kafka or anything like that hanging out ha hanging out in the bookshelves. But uh, I do remember reading and paying a great amount of attention to the sort of smallest of artifacts, even you know cereal box ingredient lists, things like that, and also small gestures, small human gestures of, you know, seeing my, my, my family, my mother, my friends sort of react with other humans and, and kind of dwelling on those when I'd be playing in the yard with, you know, my, my made up obstacle courses or whatever, or chasing my dog around the yard or things like that. So, yeah, I think, I don't know, I, I'm just really grateful for the time that I had as a child to, to, to dwell in these spaces that, I probably wouldn't have been able to have had I grown up in a, in a in a busy household. What do you remember then about literature or the pleasure of reading or even poetry specifically emerging for you? When was that moment? It's, it's funny, Stuart, because I uh, wrote that poem in fifth grade and I don't remember writing another poem until I was maybe 20 years old. Uh, I think, I don't know if I was scarred or or what exactly, but um, I remember being quite afraid of literature, you know, uh, feeling like I didn't get it or feeling like it was above my intellectual capacities for a long time. There was a moment in eighth grade, however, where I, re I distinctly remember, uh, I think it was an English arts teacher, and I, my assignment was I had to close read uh, Tracy Chapman's song, Fast Car. and. I didn't write, you know, immediately after that, but that was a really transformative moment for me to, to really spend time with that beautiful song and, um, you know, think about this other person speaking speaking to, to everybody, but in that moment speaking to me. 
But then I found myself in college, and it wasn't, it was a year or two into college where I found myself somehow in a creative writing classroom. I wasn't an English major. Um, pardon me, it was actually a, a poetry, a modernist poetry classroom. And that's where I fell in love with poetry, reading the modernists like um, Wallace Stevens and HD, Gertrude Stein, uh, even some Ezra Pound. And that's what really got me thinking, oh, poetry doesn't have to rhyme. It doesn't have to, you know, necessarily be this dense, opaque block. It can be, it can be inviting in, in, in new ways. I'm struck by a couple of things that you mentioned there. One was around whether or not you had the sort of intellectual capacity for literature. And that makes me uh, um, wonder about this perception that perhaps poetry is challenging. It, it is hard and we should be afraid of it. And you've sort of alluded a little bit to that with literature. And then you talked about modernist poetry too, which seems even more terrifying to me. And I, again, I, I, I think this is potentially a bit of a cliche, but, but is there something to that perception? And if there is, how, how did you break through that to find that you could revel in this poetry? I think that, you know, that is definitely a perception. I talk with, to my students about this all the time. Um, you know, Mary Rufel mentioned one time that uh, the problem with poetry in terms of the wider public is that its medium is language and everybody uses language. And so when you confront language without knowing what it's doing, it's, it can be an alienating feeling. Um, so for me, I think there's a poem by Ezra Pound, very small, it's called In a Station of the Metro, and it just goes, the apparition of these faces in the crowd petals on a wet black bow. That's the whole poem. It just operates as this central metaphor connecting uh, two realities as one. And um, when I read that, sort of lightning struck in my in my brain, I think, because I, I, on a surface level, I was able to understand it immediately, but it invited me in to keep dwelling on it a little bit more and more and more. And so that, that immediacy really became... Uh, addictive to me in a way, uh, as making my brain do things I wasn't otherwise uh, privy to. But I think, um, as to the larger question about poetry, you know, I think that uh, Heather Crystal, I think, described encountering a poem being like going on a long walk and watching the squirrels in the trees. And you don't often ask, like, what did the trees mean? What did the squirrels mean? You just experience them. And so I think if, for me, when I was able to let myself bask in the experience of language and trust that I don't have to know what it means immediately or even ever, and I can just experience the language as a materiality because it is, then I can, I can find myself in enjoying this really intimate form of art. I love the use of the word intimacy. Uh, I also love how you're talking about the beauty of the form too, and how we can make sense of the world around us in ways that perhaps we're, we're not considering, e e even if it seems as something as um, perhaps uh, dreamscape-like as thinking about what are the trees thinking about. But there's something that I think we can find about ourselves and about the world in that. I wonder if just before we move into a break, I could invite you to uh, read something for us. And uh, I'll give you a second just to find that um, and reference for listeners that Trey's reading from uh, his book, Thought That Nature, that was published by Saraband Books in 2014. So Trey, yes, if you wouldn't mind giving us a reading. Sure. 
We use spoons mostly. What this says about a human, as opposed to, say, another beast, has everything to do with electricity and warmth. Through the window to the backyard, the river crystal clear like glass. Like glass? Is it human to be redundant and to overstate the obvious? The river crystal clear between the floorboards, under my feet and under your feet, and the way we stand may or may not alter its course. When was our last rain? Wasn't it Saturday, I'm pretty sure? What memory performs as opposed to, say, the sounds outside this window? There are birds and there are cicadas. There are cicadas and there are birds and even crickets. Hello. This moment has just recently passed. We close our eyes more often than we think. Let me just say again and very quickly, one last time, hello. Thinking about the themes that you explore in your work, and I have read you say that you're a sucker for maps and topography and, and all things place, and you include in that weather too. What is it about place, space, and the natural environment that seems uh, to be something that you need to explore in your work? Well, first of all, also, a lot of people maybe make fun of those little conversations that we have with others about the weather, but I really love those conversations and really bask in them. So, um, you know, if you ever want to chat that, about that with me, I'm, I'm up for it. Well, the British are very well known for <laughs> talking about one thing only, and that's the weather. <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, so, you know, growing up, uh, in San Antonio, um, as you would probably know or guess, it's a really hot place and um, for much of the year. And so air conditioning became part of my sort of ethos from a very young age. And, you know, growing up thinking, it's really interesting that all these people live here um, despite the weather, you know, uh, and, and air conditioning, of course, being a, one reason why that's possible even. Um, so, you know, thinking about... As a, I remember as a child thinking, it's really interesting, too, how we have these technologies that we rely on day to day, but yet weather is something we, we, do, we can't do anything about, really, except control our, our own intimate comfort. And so, you know, I didn't think about it like this as a, as a young child, but, you know, the politics of weather and um, who has access to, to, to sort of controlling their own uh, levels of comfort uh, became really interesting to me as, as a youngster. And of course, you know, topography and land and how, how land contributes to, uh, you know, food is something I love deeply. And so thinking about those relationships, even when I was young, uh, became really interesting to me. And so, you know, maps also, I, I have two antique maps of, of Texas inherited from my father hanging in my house. And I recognized the, the, the vast colonial uh, problems with maps uh, historically. Um, in a lot of contexts, uh, and I also really like maps because they're 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 sort of their own um, artistic interpretations of 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 in some cases mysteries, you know, in some cases you know known entities. But I find them perplexing and challenging and difficult and frustrating and and somehow meditative. It hit me hard as you were sharing that that you talked about the loss of your father. And you have these antique maps that were his, and both of them 
in some ways are representing, as you say, that mystery of something that is a memory that is lost but recorded in some way that, that isn't represented by the world that we are in now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think that, you know, those maps are also some sort of preservation or archival record of, of an emotional landscape, you're right, that I'm holding on to in some ways, yeah. Pursuing that theme a little bit further, your book, Thought That Nature, is really interestingly structured. There are three sections, and the first and third section are not titled. But the middle section is titled um, Lancaster County uh, Notebook. I think that's correct. Yeah. And it draws on the journals of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And you extract elements from those journals and interweave them and reinterpret and apply them in, in these poems that you use to explore different themes there. And again, I'm curious, to what degree were you inspired by place and by experience and memory and what else were you exploring with that particular structure so that particular se sequence i was writing um as i was reading the abridged lewis and clark journals um uh, which was actually a part of a, a course i was taking at the university of nebraska um, by an amazing place studies scholar named fran k and um the journals were really interesting just because of, uh, you know, these, these firsthand accounts of exploring to what Lewis and Clark, of course, was, was an unknown, but was, of course, not unknown for, for many, many, many people. Um, and so seeing uh, their, their, their shock, their delights, their struggles, their amazement uh, felt particularly interesting to me. Um, uh, also, you know, their shortcomings and their, uh, their their use of language was interesting because they were both very different writers and processed very, very differently. And um, I, th I believe it was the second year, my, f my second year living in Lincoln when I wrote that sequence. And I was really processing a new place. I had never lived outside of Texas in my whole life at that point. And so I found myself, you know, processing uh, what it was like to be in a new state, in a new region, in a new ecosystem. And um, it just so happened that uh, I think it was the springtime when I started uh, looking every day at a journal entry that they would have written on that date, a particular, I can't remember the exact dates, but a particular neat year uh, parallel ago. And so then I would try, um, maybe not every day, but often to write something in conjunction with what their entry was doing. And so sometimes they, they're, they're formed as critiques and sometimes they're formed as collaborations in a way. Um, but I found it I found it helpful for me in navigating a new place. I like how you have explored different ways to create the poems that you that you write and different sources of inspiration, different ways to uh, analyze and think about subject matter and consider the world at large. More recently, so uh, thought that nature was published in 2014, but you've been writing a vast amount of published poems since then, and one that I especially liked. It, it takes a form more of prose, but it's so poetic in language and content. And it's called The Committee on Silence, and it was um, 
published recently in Gulf Coast Literary Journal, I believe. Um, a little bit too long for us to invite you to read that on air, but it's more of a fairy tale. And so this seems to be something of an evolution, again, in the form of the work that you're creating. Would you talk a little bit more about that piece? Absolutely. So that piece is an extension of a lot of what I've been writing for maybe the last decade. I have a, a beautiful daughter, talented, creative, um, amazing daughter named Charlotte, and uh, she's 11 now. And uh, I don't know at what age, but you know, I started reading fairy tales to her, of course, um, as one does. Uh, interestingly, I didn't receive, I, I didn't read fairy tales when I was a child, and so it was a, a first time for me to, to get to know these fairy tales and myths as well. So. You know, the poems I've been writing more recently have a lot to do with that, that, that gift and that responsibility of raising a child. And, you know, what we know now is the Anthropocene, um, this, this era where we don't know what's going to come next, right? We don't know, we don't know um, what's, what's around the bend. And how, how do you, how can one even prepare a child for, for what you don't know is going to happen, you know? And so um, thinking about place in that, in those terms, has been um, circulating through my, through my thoughts quite a bit. Um, I've also, in, my, in Thought That Nature, I, I, I was really mindful to try to not write personal poems, at least personal appearing poems. I don't know why. I, I just had my reasons at that, at that moment in my life. But uh, I have been writing some more personal poems, and so I'm also, I've also been dealing with the, the, the death of my father in ways that I never have before. Um, and, you know, dealing with um, large topics that to me are really unanswerable, but they're fruitful to explore. Um, such as, you know, love and loss and things like that. Mm. So I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, before we head into another break here, just to hear from the team at KOS, if I could invite you perhaps to read one of your newer poems that perhaps speak to some of the uh, issues that you've been sharing. Great House. Because I rarely think of the word pharaoh, when I hear it humming in my head, I have to check the definition, but instead remember fifth grade, Mrs. Huckabee, my blue shirt, that the word in Egyptian once meant great house. I hadn't known until then a word could enclose something more than itself. In the United States of America, in the year 2020, it's the month of March. Right before bed, the government said everything would mostly be fine. Said all we needed to do was wash our hands. But this morning when we woke, as we wake every morning, we could no longer leave our homes. I fed my dog a red potato. I asked my daughter about myopia. I watched through the window, sunlight performing nothing in particular, while the radio announced if someone were to die, we could not hold a funeral. Then, for the first time in years, I wrote the word pharaoh, learning again, whenever this happens, no matter what, I must first misspell it before the letters begin making any kind of sense. I had the pleasure of, uh, while we were off air there, talking with you, Trey, about 
the nature of the poetry you're writing, but also who you are writing it for. And this feels like a wonderful opportunity to let you read something else. Absolutely. So I'm going to read a poem um, that I wrote when my daughter uh, turned seven, which I found particularly meaningful because, as I mentioned, my father died when I was seven. And so um, thinking about, you know, these, these, these time markers in terms of how they complicate and, 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 and collaborate with each other in our lives uh, felt particularly interesting to me. And I will say that one time I read this poem at a, at a reading and my daughter was there and I told her I would be reading it. And it, it was partially about her. And so I read the poem and she listened. Uh, and it was the last poem I read and I left and people were clapping and she comes running up to me with these big eyes and I was like, oh, this is going to be a beautiful, beautiful moment as a parent. And she says, Daddy, Daddy, Claire just got a root beer. Can you get me a root beer too? And I said, sure. Scrubbing the skillet. I realize my daughter just turned seven and doesn't know I was seven when my mother crept into my carpeted room while I played a video game to say my father, who had been far away taking fluids from tubes in a California hospital, had died. My daughter doesn't know, I said, okay, and kept playing, so my mother would leave, so I could feel how it felt not to have a father, or how having a father who was dead was supposed to feel because I already knew what not having a father felt like. Now my daughter doesn't know I can hear her cartoon spilling from the TV as I finish the dishes. Doesn't know I am building the scene I imagine unwinding inside her mind. The one where she helps the town children rope their runaway mare, scared and stuck in the mountains. Even though my daughter doesn't know how to ride a horse. But in this scene, if someone were to tell my daughter her father had died, She'd know to calmly walk the mare back all the way into town, whispering into the animal's ear how pretty she was, how sweet, because most nights beside my tired daughter in her dark room as she curves against sleep, that's what she whispers to me. Do you write, Trey, for yourself, or do you write for the reader? Or is there some uh, formula, some um, you know, set of ingredients that make up the nature of who it is and why it is that you're writing? I definitely write for myself, but um, I think the more I wrote, the, 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 more, the longer I've been writing, I've realized that it's a much greater pleasure and responsibility and gift to be writing for others, too, um, because... I, um, literature has been called uh, equipment for living, and uh, I've I've definitely been equipped phenomenally um, in a lot of the literature that I love, uh, and been given so many so many um, uh, prized ways of thinking and being in the world. And so, I'm not going to say I think that I'm doing the same thing, but participating in that history, participating in that conversation, and respecting. Uh, those who came before me as part of my writing life is is very important to me. So it's 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 both is my answer. Let me ask a pretty blunt question that I think uh, uh, requires um, 
you know, more thought than perhaps I'm allowing you time for, but why do you write poetry? Well, I um, gravitated as a teenager to playing the guitar, and that was my first, I think, entry into a sort of self-selected form of art. And um, I thought for a while I might be, you know, I don't know, a musician or something. I would play covers, like Radiohead covers at a motorcycle biker bar, I remember, when I was in high school. Um, it was particularly funny. Um, that obviously didn't work out. Uh, but I loved, you know, the intimacy of song. Um, but as I've, as I've gotten older, I've realized, for me, poetry is just, it, it's the most intimate, most intense form of pure language that we have as humans. Because on the one end, we have song, which is beautiful and intimate. But of course, it has music to accompany it. And as we know, any, any, any filmed scene, if you put a soundtrack score to it, it takes on all kinds of significance. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have maybe you know, a love letter we could write to somebody, or a text message, or something like that. But of course, that's meant for private consumption. And so poetry is, to me, this, this, this uh, pure form of language art, which is at once private and at once public. And um, that intensity, one of my first poetry teachers described poetry as being intensity. Um, that intensity uh, is alluring to me, and I love participating in it, and it, makes, it sharpens my mind in ways that I've never felt before um, reading and writing seriously. It occurs to me that it would take, with that intensity, a pretty robust degree of courage and also vulnerability, not only to write poetry, but also to perform it in public, especially in front of people that perhaps may be the subjects of uh, what you're writing about or perhaps um, affected by the personal reflections you have in the poems about something that may affect them too. So I'm, I'm curious, what is it like to perform in public, to read your work to people? Oh, Stuart, it's such a, it's such a pleasure to be able to do that because as a writer, you know, there's a lot of time spent in my room by myself, um, you know, scribbling things in a notebook and being very inside my, my head and heart. Um, so when I'm able to read, like now, or you know, at a, at a live reading, it's such a gift because I, uh, I can I can feel people's energy in the same room with me, and you know, I know when I'm at readings that I um, particularly feel moved by. I know what that feels like, and it's uh, I think poetry. One of its core responsibilities is connection. Um, which is achieved by intimacy, which is achieved uh, on a one-person-to-one-person -one equation, even when it's a filled room. And I love that, that, that um, discrepancy between small, intimate, intense, fragile, and also largely heard, largely accepted. You've been writing poetry for a long time. And of course, I don't mean to be facetious, but since fifth grade, uh, you shared that poem <laughs> with us. Um, but also now professionally, uh, in terms of being published, but also as a teacher of the craft too. That's a lot of work. And I am curious, as you step back and look at that period of writing, how have you been influenced by or changed by the work? My, you know, my students surprise me all the time, and I 
I've thought about this before, you know, what, what kind of poet would I be like if I hadn't been teaching for the last, oh, I guess about 15 years now, you know? Um, and I, I don't know what kind of poet I would be, but I, I feel confident that I would be a lesser poet for sure, because, you know, there's such collaboration in classrooms and, um, uh, the, the way I teach, I'm not lecturing a lot, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm facilitating discussions and I'm setting up um, situations in classrooms where students can take the center stage as, as often as possible. And, um, uh, it, it, you know, learning from that and also encouraging them along. And I think in that, in that shepherding, it's helpful. It's helpful. It's been helpful to reflect on my own poetics uh, constantly. Um, I never get a break from really thinking about that in a way. Um, even when I'm not teaching poetry, which happens quite often, you know, if I'm teaching literature, I'm still thinking about my relationship with language and with the, the tradition and, and with my students. And so that responsibility is one that I, I don't take lightly. And I'm just astonished that I get to do that um, for, a, for, a, for a job. Would now be a good time to ask you to perhaps just tell us about another poem that you uh, will read for us, perhaps just to introduce it a little and um, and then share it. Um, I'll read this poem that sort of engages with um, some influences. This poem's also in, in relationship to um, a well-known Rilke poem. I won't give it away, but, but you can look it up. Just Google Rilke, Change Your Life. And... Um, you know, this poem was coming for me when I wrote this at a particularly difficult time in my life. And uh, so it's become meaningful in those ways, as well as being able to discuss and be in conversation with, as I said, my, some of my influences, some of my, some of my, um, my elders. Oracle. There was a lamp spilling light up along the wall. There was a bird. There was a neighbor scraping snow off the driveway. There was Schubert. There was list. I think the bird was black. I confess I did not see it. Still, it suggested to me in a monotone voice that I should change my life. Oh, also there was a lake and there were geese. The geese I saw, I promise. There was a canvas bag heavy with food for a party. There was not really a lake. I mean, it was more like a pond. This can be a little difficult to distinguish. There was talk of pecans and there was talk of wine. I know this because I could taste them. There was a black bird feeding off entrails. There was sun, it was not winter. It was not a river either. The bird casually mentioned, I should change my life. The neighbor was clearing the driveway of snow. I fell out of my habit of answering the phone. Sometimes it would ring and ring. Yes, hello, there were metaphors everywhere. There were even three pieces of pie. Always, there was more to say. Spilled light on the ceiling, a voice's words interrupting the music. There was a book by Agnes Martin, a book by Jean Follin. Listen, there was a very black bird Change your life, it whispered. Okay, I whispered back. It seems to me that poetry has occupied a really important place in your life. And I, I want to ask if you feel like 
writing poetry, creating poetry, encouraging others to poetry is your purpose in life? Or if, in fact, you're exploring what purpose means through your poetry? That's an all-time question, I think, Stuart. Um, <laughs> I save that for the last four minutes of this show. <laughs> my, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what my purpose in life is, but I'm okay not knowing what my purpose in life is. Um, but I definitely like exploring what, where I can find senses of purpose, senses of responsibility, senses of place, senses of meaning. You know, I think right now my purpose is to make sure I raise a healthy, uh, thoroughly um, humanized individual. And so um, I don't know if I can speak about poetry in terms of my purpose, but it's something that I know I've given my life to and I've, um, I feel compelled to continue doing it. So I think for now that has to be enough. If I was to invite you to make a pitch to the listeners as to why they should think poetry matters for them and to their lives. How would you respond to making a pitch like that? Well, language matters, right? You know, there's no other art form to my mind that can calibrate language in a way to remind us what it is currently, where it came from, you know, etymology. Um, uh, how its use can be impactful or not impactful, um, where we can see uh, rhetorical shadings, where we can recognize misuse of language in certain contexts, which is incredibly important, um, especially you know as 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 time progresses. And so, uh, recalibrating ourselves to language, uh, there's no better teacher than poetry. And my, my teacher, uh, one of my former teachers, a mentor. And friend Kathleen Pierce used to tell us, um, your work is to find your edges. And so I think poetry is a way to continually find, find, find one's edges. Um, uh, who, who am I as a person? What am I capable of? You know, what, what kinds of generosity or, or kindness or uncomfortabilities am I willing to live with? Um, and I think in poetry, we see that first in language, but then we see it through the experience that that language can create on the page or being heard, but then we then we feel that we embody that we we embody what it feels like to explore those edges and find them, which I think is a worthwhile life's work. Thank you, Trey, for being in the studio today and for reading some of the poetry that you shared with us. Uh, I would encourage listeners to uh, take up uh, your exhortation to find that equipment for living that is in poetry. Trey, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Thanks so much, Stuart. I appreciate it. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.